Driving down this cold town road Listen to my rubber tires whine Goodbye to Buckeye, White Sycamore I'm leaving you behind And I've been a coal miner all my life Laying down track in the hole Got a back like an ironwood Warped by the wind And blood veins as blue as a coal Blood veins as blue as a coal When the strike happened, they decided to throw everybody out of the houses. And I don't mean they just told them to get out. They literally threw their clothing, their bedding, all their food, everything out into the street, out into the mud. There are times when it looks like we're going way backwards, and certainly there are many instances of that in today's world. But we are never going lower than we started. The only reason that workers were not in better positions was because they were being denied education. They were being kept ignorant on purpose. We tried petitions, we tried talking, we tried, finally we took our kids to work and changed diapers on the president of the university's desk, and we got a daycare center. Yesterday, I drove a few hours west through howling wind and driving rain to the little town of Winber, Pennsylvania, a couple miles from Johnstown. The Pennsylvania Labor History Society and the Battle of Homestead Foundation were holding their annual commemoration of the history of working people. And despite the rough weather, the basement hall at the Slovak Educational Club soon filled up with folks eager to hear a day-long program that included commemorating the United Mine Workers 1922-23 Strikes for Union Recognition discussions on women in coal and steel, and John Brophy and labor education. As folks sipped their hot coffee and munched on donuts, coal miners' balladeer Tom Brighting regaled them with labor songs. That's him singing now. You'll hear more during today's show. And on Labor History in Two, the year was 1937. That was the day workers at the Hershey Candy Plant in Hershey, Pennsylvania, sat down. I'm Chris Garlock in Winber, Pennsylvania, and this is Labor History Today. Battle of Homestead Foundation President John Hare starts things off then we'll hear about the 1922-23 mine workers strike in Winber from the Pennsylvania Labor History Society's Nick Molnar. A lot of times the history is not talking about what happened to our great-grandfathers and grandfathers and grandmothers, how we made a living and how we fought to be able to make a living and how we fought to be able to have safe conditions at work. and. Um, we want to tell those stories, uh, and we want to tell them because our children are facing as uncertain a future as our great-grandfathers did. In 1922, there were 8,000 people lived in Wimber proper. 
And like I said, in those little communities, those little mines outside of there, there were several hundred families living in each, at each one of those sites. When the strike happened, the company, well, the company itself started out uh, as a steamship company in New York City. They controlled all the, the whole port in New York City. They also uh, supplied coal to all the ships that were coming in and out of New York City Harbor. And uh, they also supplied coal to the Navy. And that was just what came out of this area. On Good Friday of 1922, the miners voted and went on strike. What happened was, after a while, the company threw all the people out of their company houses. The company owned all the houses around. Matter of fact, not only did they own all the houses, they built all this whole community here because they had a group of brickworks and all kinds of ancillary businesses, uh, a construction company, a brickworks, plumbers, the whole nine yards. And they basically control, and still do, control this, this community fairly uh, rigidly. But when the strike happened, they decided to throw, throw everybody out of the houses. And I don't mean they just told them to get out. They literally threw their clothing, their bedding, all their food, everything out into the street, out into the mud. There was really no streets. And they starved them to death, basically what they did. Those families that didn't have relatives that lived outside of this area, some of them lived in tent colonies for 12 to 16 months outside of town on private property. And the United Mine Workers District 2 supplied them with food and whatever uh, they needed, but basically what it did is it almost bankrupted District 2. I want to read uh, what John Zorarchak who uh, gave a uh, presentation to the International uh, IUP uh, uh, quite a few years ago. He's passed away now, and this is what his, what his thoughts were on the strike. So when then, on after we came into here, we finally, after all these strikes, 1927 and through 1933, and finally, warmly, he said, the dark clouds disappeared. Oh, the miners of Wimber, we got our uh, sympathetic president, and that got in there. Yes, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, they got that law, the National Labor Relations Act passed, where you can organize. You're allowed to organize if you want to organize. I'm telling you that the law was passed, and the union come in. The United Mine Work was short of, was short of funds and money, so they borrowed a half a million dollars from the AFL and put men out in the field for, for expenses to go out and talk to these miners. They thought car, they brought courage for us to sign, and the miners signed up, all who wanted the union. I'm telling you, them cards went fast. Everybody was signing up. That's 1933 when they knew that they had finally, they had finally saved. It could be done. We finally got our first union meeting at the Slovak Brick Hall. And after a couple of meetings in there, in July of 1933, we, first, we received our charter, and Berwyn White finally recognized the union. Well, that first strike was lost, but in 1933, we got, got the people back in the union. That was 10 years later. So they, they suffered for 10 years, but the strike itself lasted for 16 months. 
when they said the Slovak brick hall, it kind of made me stop and think. You know, I started asking the president of the club here about the history of this building. And this was the Slovak brick hall. It's what the people across the street called it on the other side of the track, so to speak, which is literally on the other side of the track. <laughs> or it was, or the, the hockey uh, insurance company, uh, they, they had a, an insurance company because there was no such thing as workers' comp at the time. So the pennies and the nickels and dimes that the workers could save, they put into the, their Slovak insurance company so that in case their husband or child injured, they at least had some money to fall back on. Well, the name of the insurance company was called was Zedak Hall, and in Slovak, what that means is unity. So every time they talked about the Slovak Hall, or the Hunky Hall, or whatever, they were talking about this building here. So when the strike happened, and the 1933, when the union came in, this is where the first mine workers met at, in this building. Upstairs was the gymnasium, which is now a bar, and then upstairs above that was where the insurance company was located at. So the people that are going to get recognized here today, I want them to know that you're standing on some very proud shoulders of a very proud people. And I'm proud to come into this hall and say, welcome here. Welcome to solidarity, unity. This is Zoda. And I appreciate it. And I appreciate everybody, everybody coming here. She gave food to the starving, clothes to the babes, brought children into this hard world of labor and capital, poisoned by greed, Seeking only to comfort the many But the steel trust gunmen Fired on the line As the miners' children she gathered round Now her blood-soaked picture In their union halls Fanny Sellins dead on the ground See a guardian dear, a battle for freedom and love, committed her here, committed her here. Next is Kip Dawson, a retired coal miner and member of the United Mine Workers Union, who received this year's Mother Jones Award for her work to preserve the history of and build on centuries of worker struggles. Because history is not a one-way up or down story, we are on a spiral, we humans, and our history is a spiral. There are times when it looks like we're going way backwards, and certainly there are many instances of that in today's world. But we are never going lower than we started. In fact, we keep building on the history of those who made the struggles happen. The, the history that Steffi presented to you here, the history that came before that and continued since it, 
We keep moving up, even though sometimes we have lost. We keep building on the struggles we've had before us. And here I want to give a tip of the hat to all of those historians who are sitting in this room and to the Battle of Homestead Foundation. Because if it were not for you who are keeping alive our stories, then we would be going slowly downhill right now. But we're not doing that. We are building on the history that we are not only keeping alive, but we're making even more alive. And a tip of the hat right now I have to give to the West Virginia University um, History Department and the young women who have been working so hard to bring these stories into um, safekeeping and to build on them. I want to mention in particular, going back to the woman I started with, Lisa Parnell Christensen. Um, Lisa was a coal miner in Alabama who epitomized the recognition that black workers and white workers needed and still need to recognize our common need and to work and build together. And down there in Alabama, a, a, a very alive part of the United Mine Workers, as you can see in the recent strike that has just happened there against Warrior Matt Cole, black and white miners standing together with women miners firmly right there in the middle and holding, helping to hold things together. That struggle may not win the rights that the union miners went out to win. That is full union recognition at the mine and all the rights that go along with it. But it's keeping alive in Alabama what the black workers who got us that consent decree were out to get. And that is that we are in this stuff together and we are going to continue to build together. And today, at Lisa's funeral, that spirit is being celebrated by her family and by the miners and the other people of Alabama who are gathering to say goodbye to her. And as her sister put it, to say that Lisa is gone, but she will not be forgotten because the West Virginia University students who interviewed her for oral history have keeping her voice right there alongside all the other voices that you all, everybody in this room has been working and will continue to work to make sure do not disappear. And as one of our sisters said, if Lisa were sitting in this room right now, she would be, have a big grin on her face. She would look at all of you, she'd raise her fist, and she would say, hey, buddies, brothers and sisters, don't mourn for me. Joe Hill said it right. We gotta keep organizing. Because I am a union miner and I'll mine your coal for union wage for that wage I lay my life when I march down from Marmette armed with my Colt and Winchester a red bandana tied about my neck I am a union miner I'll mine your coal for union wage 
John Brophy, president of the United Mine Workers of America's District 2, which included Winbur and other Berwind White operations in Somerset County, Pennsylvania, led a vigorous campaign to bring non-union workers out of the mines in District 2. Here's Elizabeth Ricketts, professor in the History Department at Indiana University of Pennsylvania. John Brophy was born in England. Uh, his parents are Irish, very loyal Irish, very interested in Irish politics and in British politics. They came to the United States to try to find a better life for their children. They moved around a lot in Indiana and Cambria counties looking for work uh, in the mines. And so John was able to go to school a couple of months here and a couple of months there. But when he entered the mines at the age of 12, that was, that was it, formal education. But John Brophy is considered a labor intellectual in the United States. He's completely self-educated. He loved to read. He would read anything he could get his hands on. And in those days, a lot of stuff, newspapers would come in on trains and they would circulate through the entire community. And Brophy would read everything there was to read. And there were a lot of labor papers at the time, especially like the Pennsylvania Grit, which was about labor and had a special section about coal mining. But he read that faithfully, read many other newspapers faithfully. His mother was a housekeeper and she would bring magazines and books home from her job. Um, after he went to work, he would save his money. He still lived at home with his parents. And he saved his money, and he would buy books. He was always very active in the union, and he managed to get himself blacklisted around 1914. No, I'm sorry, 1910. And he went to uh, Michigan where he worked near Detroit and had access to real libraries and to the debating societies that were very popular at the time. He met, uh, he met Daniel uh, DeLeon and his son Solon. He read a lot. He went to the debating societies. He started reading economics, political theory, um, and really became incredibly educated through his own efforts. And he talked about how hard it was after a day's work in the mines to do any reading, but he said that is the really good thing about strikes and get a lot of reading done. So it, they're not all bad. <laughs> and he came back to District 2 in 1914 and in 1916, he was elected president of the district. He would have been about, I think, 31 at the time and was in, just incredibly dynamic. So. There were problems going on at the time. Overcapacity was about 100%, and miners were working about two to three days a week, and by the time we get to the mid-20s, it's often two to three days a month. And so you can imagine how hard it is to maintain the union and union solidarity in that kind of an environment. So Brophy began right away as soon as he became president of the union, he began educational programs because he believed in the intelligence of the working class. And he believed that the working class were, should be, 
the first class in society. These were the people who created all wealth, and these should be the people who made the decisions about economics and about society. And as far as he was concerned, the only reason that workers were not in better positions was because they were being denied education. They were being kept ignorant on purpose. And as an ignorant population in that they didn't have very much education, and what they did tended to be, you know, the teachers are hired by the companies and they teach the company line to their students. So we're going along, we have the 22 strike, which is pretty bad. Uh, we get to 1924, and two things are happening in 1924 that are gonna create a whole new workers' education movement. One of the things that happens is the open shop drive. In 1924, closed mines, operators close mines, and they won't let people accrue debt at the company store. They start kicking them out of company housing. That's getting really bad, but they have signs up that says, as soon as we get enough miners who will agree to the 1917 $5 scale, we will reopen the mines. And we will keep all other union, all other parts of the union contract, except the wage scale. This starts to break the union, as you can imagine. The other thing that's going on is that people are saying, why are we in this mess? Why don't we have work? And the operators plug into a group that has really grown over the last couple of years, the KKK, who say it's these immigrants who are coming in here taking their jobs. And they're Catholic. And they're having billions of Catholic babies. And they are not only gonna take your children's jobs, but they're gonna grow up and vote and take over this country. And then we're gonna lose our democracy because they're papists. And they don't, aren't gonna respect America. So um, in the spring of 1924, when things really are starting to fall apart, um, District 2 gives John Brophy permission to start an education department. They came up with the idea to have labor Chautauquas. And they had state level speakers and national level speakers who came and talked about serious things like economics, labor parties, um, nationalization, all of these deep topics. They made sure that they had classes in these communities before they had these Chautauquas so that people were already grounded. They, Chautauquas were then open to everyone in the community and in the nearby areas. So it drew in farmers and um, storekeepers and other people who they could also explain how we're all in this together. If we make better wages, we can buy more food from the farmers, we can spend more in your store, it's to your advantage for us all to stick together as a community. Otherwise, the money is just going straight out of this community. We get to the 30s, the CIO comes along, led by nothing other than John L. Lewis, 
um, who decides that as first director of the CIO, he wants John Brophy. So he looks him up, deaths him off, and puts him in charge of, as the first director of the CIO, he's in charge of, of SWAC, Steelworkers Org Organizing Committee, and he's able really to stay and work in labor um, for the rest of his life. But he always, always maintained such a confidence and dedication to teaching the working class everything so that they could be the leaders, not only of their communities, but of their nation and the world. And he so believed in that. We close with former mine worker Bonnie Boyer. All of you here are here because you know a little bit about history, you want to celebrate victories of history, you want to see a better future for other people, not just ourselves. That's how unions work. You don't have to be working to be active. I've been retired 10 years now. I love raising hell. There's lots of things we can do for our community, for our children, for our friends, for our neighbors, because labor is the foundation of good communities. I took a civil service test and wound up at a major university. I went there in 1967 and there were all these wonderful students looking for a worker to organize and there I was. And that was the biggest gift I ever got because when I realized you could get stuff, one of the things we did was we fought for a daycare center because there were a lot of people there who had to take care of the kids while they were working. So that was one of our first fights when we got a daycare center. We tried petitions, we tried talking, we tried, finally we took our kids to work and changed diapers on the president of the university's desk, and we got a daycare center. <laughs> what you do matters, so do it. Vote, volunteer, tell people about history, tell people about current events. We can change things and make things a lot better. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1937. That was the day workers at the Hershey Candy Plant in Hershey, Pennsylvania sat down. CIO organizers for the new United Chocolate Workers Union reported that anywhere from 2,000 to 2,400 workers were on strike. Hershey was a company town where streets were named Chocolate and Coca Avenue. Housing was built for workers and the company funded public education and transit service. But the company also sought to monitor and control workers' behavior on their off time and showed favoritism in hiring and wages. The Great Depression created dire conditions even in the sweetest place on earth. Hours and bonuses had been cut. Workers grew increasingly frustrated with production speed up and unpredictable work schedules, all while Hershey still drew handsome profits. The company initially raised wages after meeting with the union, but then laid off the organizers three months later. That's when the workers shut off their machines and occupied the plant. The company refused to negotiate unless the workers left. By April 7th, dairy farmers became incensed at the loss of income. They mobilized with anti-union company forces to storm the factory and drive the strikers out. Organizers had agreed to end the strike in order to resume negotiations and avert violence. But the anti-union forces attacked the sit-downers with bats, whips, clubs, and hammers. Three CIO organizers were singled out and severely beaten. Governor George Earl condemned the attack and blamed the county sheriff for suppressing labor rather than preventing mob rule. The strike was smashed. Attempts to install a company union failed soon after. 
Hershey would be one of the first candy companies to be organized when the Bakery, Confectionery, Tobacco Workers, and Grain Millers International Union won recognition two years later. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. And uh, some of you may remember another recording of this, but this was Woody's original. I've sung this song, but I'll sing it again. Place that I live on the wild windy plains in the month called April, county called Gray. Here's what all of the people there say. So long, it's been good to know you. And that's it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. Very special thanks to the Pennsylvania Labor History Society and the Battle of Homestead Foundation for organizing yesterday's annual commemoration of the history of working people, and especially for welcoming me so warmly. Find out more on their websites, palaborhistorysociety.org and battleofhomestead.org. You can subscribe to Labor History Today on your favorite podcast app. And even better, if you like what you hear, we sure hope you do, like it in your podcast app, pass it along, leave a review. That really helps folks to find the show. Labor History in Two is a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. That's a labor-themed radio show out of Pennsylvania. Our music today was performed live at the Slovak Educational Club by coal miners balladeer Tom Brighting. You can find out all about Tom at Tom Brighting, that's B-R-E-I-D-I-N-G, Dot com. He's got a concert coming up on May 10th at Club Cafe in Pittsburgh. Labor History Today is produced by the Kelmenovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. The Labor History Today team includes Ben Blake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Pozak, and Alan Weirdak. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock in Winber, Pennsylvania. Thanks for listening. Keep making history. And see you next time. This might be the end, but you've got your last chance at salvation from sin. Here's my favorite verse. Well, the churches was jammed and the churches was packed. And that dusty old dust storm would blow so black. The preacher could not read a word of his text, so he folded his specs, took up a collection, said, So long, it's been good to know you, so long, it's been good to know you, so long, it's been good to know you, this dusty old dust is getting my home, and I've got to be drifting along. One more time, nice and loud. So long, it's been good to know you. So long, it's been good to know you. So long, it's been good to know you. This dusty old dust is getting my home. And I've got to be drifting along. Yeah. Thank you so much, everybody. Thanks.
have a wonderful day. And thank you to all of you who put this together and, and keep the labor history of this country alive. Thanks.